You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I've never mistakenly walked in on the wrong girl in the shower. It was always intentional. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name is Sean Ingle and my job is to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics starting at cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004 with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, two characters that we're actually going to be covering in the show today. In fact, we've got a Bo Smith penned Guy Gardner book. Yes, those are now kind of few and far between, especially with the Guy Gardner series ending, but there were a couple of ancillary stories and other mediums that uh, Bo Smith wrote for that uh, we're going to get to cover. This one is in Showcase 96. Showcase was essentially a book that started, well, in the 1960s that started out doing uh, what was kind of the X factor of its time. It premiered different characters that didn't know if they could carry their own book, gave them stories, and basically floated it out to see whether or not these characters would work. In the uh, beginning, it was the uh, book that started out the Silver Age Flash, the Silver Age Green Lantern, but nowadays, in the 90s, it was more of a... It started out initially as a Batman title, with the ancillary Batman characters, and then in 95 and 96, it dealt with a lot of the ancillary Superman characters. This time out, we're going to be dealing with Guy Gardner, Warrior, and Steel. So, we get a little bit more of the relationship with Guy and Steel that we did in the uh, Capital Punishment storyline. Of course, we're also going to be covering the Green Lantern book, Green Lantern number 86, where, well, it's basically breakup time for Donna and Kyle. At least the beginning of it, because not only this time did Kyle kind of mess up by uh, looking at a naked girl in the shower, he also messed up because he decided that he could invite that girl over to spend time with him, or basically live with him. That girl is Jade, it's Alan Scott's daughter, and it makes sense that Alan Scott would tell Jade that she could crash at Kyle's apartment because he feels that Kyle is a character that really wouldn't take advantage of her. Unfortunately, Donna may not feel the same way, and this is eventually going to lead to them breaking up. Sadly, I don't think this was an organic thing. I think this was more of a writer thing, but it's there anyway. But despite my negative feelings on that, we're going to be taking a look at these two books. We're going to be playing a couple of promos, including a couple of new ones, looking at the emails, and some general other fun stuff. So stay tuned after the break for Green Lantern number 86. time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous. 
cuff, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder. Oh, no. Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship out. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fans. Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays. Available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. We would be honored if you would join us. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil. Blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? And we're back. And what you just heard there was one of those aforementioned new podcast promos that I was talking about. Yes, it's a podcast promo for Dave's a Daredevil Podcast. J. David Weeder is doing a new podcast, I'm assuming a la the Superman Forever radio that he used to do, except this time out, instead of looking at the Man of Steel, he's looking at the Man Without Fear. Dave always does great podcasts, he's a hilarious guy, he's a good friend of the show, and he's just a pretty amazing podcaster regardless. Uh, If I'm thinking right, as soon as this show comes out, the Sunday after that, Dave's Daredevil podcast should be premiering. So if you've got space on your iTunes, uh, if you've got space on your iPhone or your MP3 player or what, go ahead and start downloading Dave's Daredevil podcast. It is definitely going to be an excellent show and well worth listening to because pretty much everything David does is great. But uh, speaking of great people, we're going to be talking to some great people, basically the people who've decided to write into this show with letters. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and to start out with our emails for this time, we have a letter from Michael Bradley, host of The Thrilling Adventures of Superman and the purveyor of the website, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers. If you haven't checked out Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, it's a website dedicated to uh, promoting the characters that Siegel and Schuster did that weren't Superman. You'd be surprised at how many DC mainstays that Siegel and Schuster did, and Superman is the main one that they get noticed for, but they also they also put a lot of characters out there that are still in the DC pantheon, so definitely go check out that podcast and that site. But Michael writes in with the title, I like big guns and I cannot lie. Hmm. I wonder what that's a reference to. I like big butts and I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. And when a girl walks in with an itty bitty waist and a round thing in your face, you get sprung. Wanna pull up 
talk Cause you notice that butt was stuffed Deep in the jeans she's wearing I'm hooked and I can't stop staring Oh baby, I wanna get whipped up And take your picture My whole boy's trying to warn me But that butt you got makes me so horny I have no earthly idea Anyway, Michael starts out the email saying, with a quote, saying, sporting a pair of guns that would make even Cable say, whoa, 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 tone it down some. Thanks for providing a hearty laugh just when I needed it, Michael. Well, Michael, you are very much welcome for that hearty laugh. Uh, I will have to admit in that last issue, well, the issue that I covered, uh, 84, no, it was 83, actually. Uh, Recording these out of time and in advance and everything just messes up you know, from last week but uh, yes at the beginning of that book Kyle was supporting some ridiculously ridiculously big guns and yes I think the uh, son of Gene Gray and Scott Summers from the future that really wasn't from the future I don't know it's all messed up probably would have been very impressed with the guns that Kyle was packing so you're very welcome Michael Again, if you're not checking out Michael's site, uh, Single and Truth or Schuster Mythmakers, I can speak. Go ahead and check it out now. I'll give you a chance to come back. I'm not too worried. You'll be back eventually. Okay, thanks for coming back. Hope you enjoyed the site. After that, I did have a little letter from Sally Pascal, the uh, host of the Greenlander Butts Forever website. It wasn't really anything to be read on the air. I basically contacted her since... Well, she's not all that into podcasting, but I think she would have liked hearing about the uh, Bo Smith interview. I contacted her and let her know about that, and she was very grateful to hear about that. Hopefully she's had an opportunity to listen to the Bo Smith interview, because I think everyone should listen to that interview. That's just a fun time, and Bo Smith was just an amazing guy. And again, I keep harping on it, because it was just so amazing getting to do the uh, show with Bo Smith. But our next email for the show comes from the man, the myth, the legend, my good friend and co-host of the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, as well as host of Earth Destruction Directive, both over at the Two True Freaks website, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. And Luke writes an email in with the title of Finish Him Fatality. Wonder what he's talking about. Luke writes in saying, Sean, Fatality is such a wonderfully 90s name for a supervillain, isn't it? I'll agree. Uh, It does have a very 90s ring to it, and yes, obviously it was, if not a riff, at least an homage to the Mortal Kombat games in the game. I think there may have been some synergy going on there. He continues saying, I've read a few things with Fatality in it, mostly related to the build-up for Blackest Night and the related stuff for the GL books, which eventually spread it out into the entire DCU. She seems like what I like to call a quote-unquote high-impact character, which were very prominent in the 1990s. In-your-face attitude, over-the-top attire, a name like a punch in the teeth. Check, check, check. Please don't misunderstand me as a kid who was born in 1980 and cut his teeth as a serious comic fan in the 1990s. I like high-impact characters like Venom, Bane, Vengeance, Fate, and yes, even baddies like Fatality. Uh, I'm kind of in the same book, Luke. I didn't really... I wasn't born, I was born about a decade sooner than you were, but most of my comic book reading did come in the 90s, the era where Image was king, the X-Men were the hottest thing, and characters like this were the sort of, to quote Andrew Leyland, 
hot new thing. Luke continues on, The comics in the 1990s were, in many ways, an extension of the sort of storytelling motifs from the 1980s. The 80s gave us longer, more involved story line or plot lines, being supported by shorter stories of maybe a few issues apiece. The 90s continued this trend, but the subplots got longer and more complex. The 80s introduced the idea of the crossover story as an event. The 90s again continued this trend, but again they got larger and more complex. And the 80s upped the ante on the bad guys, making them tougher and nastier. Characters like Fatality are indicative of how this trend continued to grow as we entered the 1990s. Obviously, a lot of these characters didn't make it, but it's clear. But clearly, Fatality is more than just a gimmick, and established herself as a mid-level but solid GL villain. More than you can say for some of the other, not exactly quote-unquote, high-impact bad guys from the various GLs fought earlier in the decade, consigned to be forgotten save for the occasional cameos and being discussed on some fine-quality comic podcasts such as this one. Yes, Sonar was definitely not one of those high-impact characters. Neither was Dr. Light, or Dr. Polaris, or Dr. Light for that matter. Luke continues on, The detention comic story sounds amusing enough. At least it remembers that Guy Gardner was a teacher and a social worker and has some insight into, into a school which seems to be on the brink. Seeing Guy handle punks is pretty bread and butter, so that's always nice. I never heard of this special, so it must have flown under my radar when it was released. Sounds like a fun and a disposable sort of way. I agree, it did fly under my radar as well. Had it not been for an advertisement in one of the Green Lantern, one of the Guy Gardner comics at the time, I probably would have passed over this uh, as well. It wasn't really hard to find in the uh, back issue bins. You just had to go look under the D's because it was a one-off. But eh, it was an interesting comic. Uh, it had some really good artwork from Ron Lim and uh, Norm Brayfogle in the uh, Superboy and Robin books. And even Ruben Diaz did a good job at drawing Guy Gardner. It was a fun little book. Uh, like I said, a little preachy at times. But uh, when you expect an after-school after special type book like this... It's going to be a bit preachy. It wasn't over the top. It didn't make me want to throw the comic against the wall, but it was a fun book nonetheless. And if there's anything that I've tried to get across in this comic book podcast that I've been doing is that I like things in my comics, or at least I like my comics to be fun. So this filled that literal requirement of what I like to have my comics essentially be about. Continuing on, Luke says, The idea of a juvenile delinquent student with superpowers makes me think of the ill-conceived New Blood character, Mongrel, from Volume 3 of Hawkman. Mongrel was a JD High School student, quote-unquote, who lashed out at anyone and everyone around him for over supposed prejudice directed at him because of his mixed racial heritage. Fact of the matter is that he was a worthless punk with a chip on his shoulder, and once he gets a taste of his poorly defined energy projection powers, he uses it to bring his high school down around him. During a school dance. While filled with innocent students. Now we're supposed to feel pangs of sympathy for this guy. Ugh. Not sure what John Ostrander was thinking, but no one was sad when this dog was put down, pun intended. If only Guy Gardner had been around to smack some sense into this kid before he went all new blood, we'd have been spared this ridiculous storyline. Yes, I think Guy Gardner coming in and smacking around some obnoxious kids who have superpowers is always a good thing. Something you can definitely learn from. Anyway, Luke finishes up. Always, thanks for the show. Then he goes, P.S. Kyle goes dancing. Is it a boy dance party? And he has a link to the uh, 
Saturday Night Live boy dance party skit with uh, Bruce Willis. I haven't checked it out yet, but I'm certain it's hilarious fun. But thanks, Luke, for writing in. That ends the emails for today. Uh, thanks, everyone, for writing in. I really appreciate getting emails from you. Uh, keep those cards and letters coming. It's always great to have a little bit of information from the people who listen to this show. But I'm going to go ahead and segue into the part of the show that I'm usually supposed to get into right now, which is the coverage of the Green Lantern comic, Green Lantern number 86. Green Lantern number 86 was covered dated May 1997 with a release date of March 5th, 1997. This information, of course, comes from Mike's Amazing World of DZ Comics. Go check it out, won't you? I know you have. Cover price is $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title is Roomy. The writer was Ron Mars. Penciler Jeff Johnson. Inker Romeo Tankall. Colors Pamela Rambo. Letterer Chris Iliopoulos. Associate Editor Eddie Briganza. And Editor Kevin Dooley. Channeling his inner Jack Burton, Kyle Rayner, the Green Lantern, attempts to stop the Chang Sing and Wing Kong gangs from kidnapping a girl with emerald eyes so they might bring her to David Lopan so he may become flesh and... Oh, wait, that's not this story. Anyhow, Kyle fights off the Asian hoodlums with some masterful fighting moves and nearly racist ring constructs, eventually rescuing the girl and picking up the Mushu chicken for his back-in-town girlfriend, Donna Troy. Cal flies back to his apartment and stops in to grab a quick cup of coffee from barista and landlord, Radu Stanju. Cal chats with some of the denizens in the apartment, including uber-hot model Allison and her underboob-windowed workout top. Trying desperately to keep his thoughts at least semi-pure, Kyle tells Radu that he's trying to stay in the straight and narrow with Donna and avoid any slip-ups with Allison. Radu admires his determination, asking if Chinese food is the way to a woman's heart. Kyle jokingly says that he can't vouch for the results as he heads up to his apartment to wait for Donna. As he enters and sets the food down, Kyle notices a strange bag in the kitchen and sounds of someone showering in the shower. Redundant. Certain that it's not someone trying to rob the place, Kyle takes a peek in the bathroom and sees a silhouette of a female shampooing her hair in his shower. Assuming that Donna made it home early, Kyle flings open the shower curtain in hopes that the former Wonder Girl would need a little help getting that tough spot to reach on her back. <laughs> what he discovers, however, it is not Donna, but the green-skinned daughter of Alan Scott, Jade. A hands construct shove out the door later, and Kyle realizes that he's made a huge mistake. Jenny quickly dons a bathrobe and apologizes for showing up at his apartment and jumping in the shower. She relates the tale of her wanting to get out of the modeling and acting business and how she thought New York would be a good place to find a new career. But with no place to stay and her father giving her Kyle's address, Jenny quote-unquote let herself in and now hopes that she might make the living arrangements a bit more permanent. Jenny mentions that she'll only be there for a few days and would even be able to help with the rent, and Kyle reluctantly agrees to the arrangement. Jenny heads back to finish up her shower and asks Kyle to toss her her backpack so she can change when she's done. Nervous about what Donna will think about all this, Kyle picks up the bag, only to have its contents spill out, revealing some silky undergarments. Kyle admires the panties until the door opens and Todd Rice steps in and catches Kyle oogling his sister's undies. This, of course, does not set well with Todd as he transforms into obsidian and plans on laying some shadow form smackdown on the Lothario Lantern. The two begin a little fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, until Jenny steps in and put a construct wall between the dim-witted duo. Todd realizes he was being overprotective and fouled up Jenny's chances for staying at Kyle's place, 
But Kyle says despite the misunderstanding, Jenny is welcome to crash there. Jenny leaps to embrace Kyle, which is perfectly timed to Donna showing up as his, at his apartment door. Wondering what's with the green girl wearing only a t-shirt in Kyle's apartment, Kyle calmly explains the situation to Donna about Jenny's new roommate status, which goes over about as well as you think it would. Well, I guess it was inevitable with uh, a certain person taking over on the Wonder Woman book to draw away Donna from the Green Lantern book. But I think over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see the very quick exit of Donna from the book, starting in this issue. I guess John Byrne wanted to deal with her exclusively in the Wonder Woman book, which I guess uh, for the betterment of Donna, maybe not the betterment, is leading up to the Who is Donna Troy story. It's a classic story that I really know nothing about, and I guess it just messes up the character of Donna Troy even more. So thanks, John Byrne, for taking her away from this storyline, and we'll see how organically Ron Mars can make that transition. But we'll go ahead and start in with the notes. Uh, starting with the cover of the book, it's a nice but again oddly laid out cover by Johnson and Terry Austin. The artwork is fine, uh, but the positioning of the characters leaves the cover feeling a little bit flat, a lot like the issue 82, which had the tiger on it. Basically, what's happening is we've got Jade in the background in her towel, which isn't a bad thing, Kyle looking kind of cartoony in the foreground, but we've got Todd in his shadow form coming up behind him. Now, from where it looks on the front of the issue, it looks like he's in front of Kyle at the bottom of the page, but behind Kyle at the top of the page, but Kyle is shooting at him with his ring on his right hand and blasting through him. It's, it all just looks kind of flat, especially the way that Kyle's hand, left hand is positioned and everything. There is not a bunch of depth to it, and it sort of, like I said, it just looks kind of flat, and it's, it's decent artwork in the design and everything, but in the composition of it, it, it just looks a little bit off to me. And then speaking of being a little off, page one is just really off and really kind of unrealistic. First of all, Kyle has come to Chinatown to pick up Chinese food for Donna. Of course, he didn't come in his regular street clothes. He came as Green Lantern, or maybe we just witnessed him change to Green Lantern in the middle of the street because there's a bunch of Chinese thugs trying to kidnap a girl. And why in the heck is there a big trouble in little China style kidnapping going on in the middle of the street. It's I guess it's just one of those ways to set up the issue and set up the reason for why Kyle would be in Chinatown getting Chinese food, but it it makes no sense to me. And what also makes no sense is on page two, Kyle is suddenly able to fend off four armed attackers who supposedly know martial arts because they're Asian and obviously all Asians know martial arts. And they're armed with bow staves and knives, but Kyle is taking them out without any real ring constructs. He's fighting them hand to hand. I guess maybe his time with the JLA has paid off a little bit more than one would have expected. And it doesn't get much better on page three with some more uncomfortable racial stereotypes. When Kyle finally does take out the Chinese gang, he takes them out with a... 
a very Asian ring construct dragon. I mean, it's not fakey like what you'd see in the, uh, I guess, in the Chinatown parades. But it is a very Asian-looking dragon taking about. And, of course, the other stereotype is the kidnapper of the Asian girl decides to get away on a very obvious Japanese sort of... I hate to say rice burner, but that's kind of the way I, the motorcycle is described. It's a very Suzuki, Kawasaki-type motorcycle. So I'm not saying that they're trying to promote Asian stereotypes, but there just happen to be a lot of them in here. Page 4, panel 3. I haven't mentioned that Jeff Johnson is the uh, sort of fill-in artist for this book to, this time out, and he does some really good artwork in the book. Uh on here, Kyle flying away uh, looks really good, and the detailing on the buildings in the background is really nice, uh, especially the uh, tops of the roofs of the uh, buildings in Chinatown. It looks really nice, and I like his artwork. His style is a bit more along the lines of Cully Hamner, who was the uh, artist who did the issue that was more anime-oriented, that was sort of kind of the first meeting with uh, Donna and Kyle. Uh, the characters are looking a bit more cartoony than Daryl Banks. It's it's a nice in-between between that, between, I think, Pelletier and Banks. It's not quite as realistic, and it's a little bit more stylized, but I'm enjoying the art nonetheless. Page 5, panel 4. Kyle mentions here that he lives on Bleecker Street in Greenwich Village. Now, this is something that I like about the book, is they're giving him an exact location where he lives, but I kind of wonder if this would actually fit into some place specifically in New York City. Again, when Thomas DJ comes on, I'll have to ask him about this and see if the, this would be an actual place where someone could actually exist. And whether or not it's by Doctor Strange's place as well. Then on page 6, we get some more character building with the book's secondary characters. The first one we get introduced to is uh, Cleveland, who's the blind musician who's staying in Kyle's apartment complex. And he and Kyle sort of have this musical exchange thing. Uh, he gives Kyle some uh, uh, Johnny Coltrane, I guess, and Chet Baker music, some obviously jazz-type music. And uh, Kyle gives him Stabbing Westward and Black 47. Now, I've heard of Stabbing Westward, but I never heard of Black 47. I guess they're primarily an Irish rock band. They may have been kind of popular in New York with the uh, underground-type people, Never heard of them, and unfortunately, I probably never will. Moving on to page 7. And the award for the most unnecessary use of a boob window goes to... The envelope, please. Oh, it's Allison from this issue. Yes. <laughs> Allison is wearing a... Well, basically a sports bra workout top that is very low-cut and shows a lot of cleavage, but... Right in the center of it, not even covering up her her ch or you know her abdomen or anything. There's a boob window in it, which makes no sense because her boobs are hanging out anyway. But I guess any opportunity to put a boob window in and any opportunity to draw Allison like, well, just basically to sexualize Allison, so to give Kyle the sort of wandering eye, which. Yeah, if I saw someone with the low-cut top and a boob window as well, I'd, I'd be looking as well. 
Then on page eight, we get some more development for one of the secondary characters of Radu, and I love Radu as a character. He's, a, he's got a friendly old world feel that I really have enjoyed watching develop in this book. He's a fun character, and he's nice as sort of a surrogate father for Kyle. Then on page 10, as we move into the apartment and Kyle sees the silhouette of the uh, girl in the shower, I really can't fault him at all because the only person who would normally have access to his apartment would be Donna. And again, Johnson does some really great artwork, especially with the facial expression of Kyle on this third panel here. He's got that sort of smirking look on his on his uh, face that says, uh, Donna's showering here. I wonder if she wants to get a little frisky in. It's it's really good artwork, and even on the uh, fifth panel down here where he uh, slides open the uh, shower curtain and looks in there and gives the whole, uh, do you want a little company in there line? So, really good artwork by Johnson here in the book. Of course, then moving to page 11, we get the full-page shot of Janie in the shower, and I have to say, this is perhaps the tamest cheesecake shot that I have seen in recent comics. Now, granted, this is the 90s, and we're not used to seeing go, let's say, Starfire's boobs splayed all over the place. Uh, it's actually pretty tasteful. Uh, the only thing I think they may have added uh, to kind of meet the comics code was they added a few more bubbles around where Jade's breasts are. So there might have been a little bit more showing there, but it's all pretty tame. But again, Really attractive artwork and a really good facial expression here uh, from uh, Jeff Johnson drawing Jade. Really nice. And that artwork is continued on the next page where you get the uh, sort of shocked look of Kyle where he's... <laughs> who didn't expect this to be someone other than Don in the shower uh, just trying to keep from having this person, oh, freak out on him. Uh, it's good artwork, again, by Johnson. Uh, I I don't know what else he's done prior to this, and I haven't had a chance to look it up yet, but he's really impressed me with his work here. Page 13, panel 2, after uh, Jade comes out of the shower really quickly with a bathrobe on, for some reason, Kyle rings up a toilet seat construct to put between himself and Jenny. I don't get what the significance of that is, but it's there for some reason. And, uh, again, I like the way Mars, I haven't commented much about Mars writing in this book, but I like the way that Mars uh, treats Kyle as an honest person. In the third panel here, he says, you know, when I said initially that I didn't see anything, I was kind of lying because I did see something. So he's not a horn dog. He's just, if you see a naked girl in the shower, yes, you're going to say you didn't see anything because you don't want to embarrass him but Kyle is at least being honest and I like that about his character but of course on page 14 panel 2 we realize that Kyle is also human even though he truly cares about Donna and he's hard pressed not to stop staring at uh, Jade's boobs because well they're green and they're right there but he gets the typical hey my eyes are up here thing so yeah You'd stare at him, too. Admit it. Page 15, just a quick note on this page. The art, I think, looks a little rushed here. The characters don't look as well-drawn as before, and the backgrounds on a lot of this page are kind of sparse, except for this one panel. So maybe this was just a 
you know, rushed page for the issue, but yeah, not as good as the rest of the stuff. Then on page 17, panel 2, uh, yeah, you get the awkward moment for the uh, story as Todd walks into the uh, apartment of Kyle and Cal is sat there holding Jade's panties right in front of him after he's uh, spent a little time looking at them. And, and again, on the prior page, on page 16, as uh, the clothing has sort of, oh, conveniently fallen out of Jade's bag, the one thing Kyle picks up and looks at are Jade's panties. And the expression on Kyle's pay- face as he's looking at them is just priceless. It's that kind of... That kind of... Uh, wow, these are really interesting kind of look. Uh, yeah, again, Johnson is doing a great job knocking it out of the park with the artwork here. After page 17, there's really not much that to talk about until we get to the final page in page 22, panel 1. And this is the thing that I think makes it the most awkward, especially with Jade wearing only a T-shirt and hanging off Kyle while Donna enters the room. But all throughout the book, I have to admit, even though he's had a watering eye, Kyle has been faithful to Donna. He's done the whole thing of looking but not touching, and I don't think he's even thought about touching. So it's disappointing in the fact that the relationship between Kyle and Donna is going to be broken up simply because I think John Byrne wanted to take Donna Troy out of the book. And I think Ron Mars was kind of rushed into writing up a story where Kyle would have to give Donna an impetus to leave. But I don't think Kyle wanted Donna to leave. At least the character of Kyle didn't want him to leave. So it's disappointing that this had to happen. Overall, this was a good book. Certain little things were kind of wonky, especially the going to Chinatown for Chinese food as Green Lantern. But overall, it introduces Jade to the book. It introduces Obsidian to the book. It brings forward more of the Green Lantern family feel that I was talking about in earlier episodes. But sadly, it does start the breakup of Kyle and Donna Troy, which upsets me. But one thing that doesn't upset me is the fact that I've got a couple of new promos to play after this. So I'm going to go take a drink, take a break, and when I come back after these promos, we'll take a look at Showcase 96, number one, starring Guy Gardner and Steel. Okay, wow, sorry I'm late. Let's see, what do we got here? Wow, this this is a lot more stuff than last time. All this for a new promo for Trendus Magnus Punches Reality? Okay, whatever. No, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm, I'm ready. Let's just bash through this, I got a plane to catch. It's for this year's Golden Headset Awards. Uh, word is my auditory orgasm of a podcast has been nominated for basically everything, and because it's me, we all know I'm going to win, so I really can't be late for this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's, let, let's roll it. Let's roll it. Trentus Magnus punches reality. Listen as Magnus discusses comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus punches reality. It's like porn for your ears. Trentus Magnus punches reality. 
It's where awesome and epic go to relax after a long day. Trentus Magnus punches reality. After all, a million monkeys at a million typewriters can't be wrong. Trentus Magnus punches reality. Because deep down inside, you know Magnus is right. Trentus Magnus punches reality. The People's Comic Book Podcast. Trentus Magnus punches reality. Because fuck you, that's why. Trentus Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at magnus.libson.com. Okay, great. Are we good? We good? We got everything? All right, great. Thanks a lot. Whatever your name is. Bye. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Rocks. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I, well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. And we are back. And what you heard there were a couple of new promos. First off, we had Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, which is quickly becoming one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. Trentus is new on the podcast scene, and he's only up as of recording to about episode 10. His podcasts are concise, funny, humorous, biting, and a little edgy as well. Trentus definitely knows his stuff and definitely wants to tell you about it. Go out and check out Trentus's podcast. Of course, the other promo was for Michael Bailey's Views from the Mob Box. Michael Bailey, of course, is the godfather of comic book podcasting, and his show View, Views from the Mob Box is the one basically that got me interested in podcasting. I wouldn't be here if it were for Michael Bailey, and you can either thank him or blame him for that as well. He also promotes Thomas DJ, a good friend of mine, as his semi-regular co-host, and I oftentimes feel really bad that uh, I've taken on that sort of moniker as Thomas DJ as my semi-regular co-host as well, because 
Michael was the first to do it, and I stole that from him as well. Jeez. I owe a lot to Michael Bailey, and I think all of us in the podcast world do. So thank you, Michael, for putting out a great promo, and thank you as well for putting out a great series of podcasts. Both of these shows are definitely worth checking out. Go take a listen to them. But first off, take a listen to this. It's Showcase 96, number one. Showcase 96, number one, was cover dated January 1996 and released on November 21st, 1995. The cover price was $2.95 US and $4.25 Canada. The story title for the story we're going to be looking at was Friends, Foes, and Other Guys. It was written by Bo Smith with pencils by Sergio Carriello, inks by Rob Lee, colors by Dave Graff, letters by Ken Brusniak, the assistant editor was Chris Duffy, and the editor was Frank Pitt-Reese. Chance. It's a word that has many definitions and meanings, and all of them are playing out at a poker table at the Squids Inn bar. Chance would have it that all the players happen to have four aces in their hands, and Chance would have it that one of the players was roided out supervillain Sledge, who's none too pleased that he was cheated. Accusations are tossed around, which inevitably leads to people being tossed around by Sledge as he starts up a roadhouse level of Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland 2011, all rights reserved. Sledge mops up the cheaters, except for one who is sporting a leather jacket, eye patch, and a head of reddish hair cut in a trademark bowl cut. But this cheater isn't Guy Gardner, but his drawl clone, Joe, who is now going by the name Enforcer, because it's the 90s. The two cease hostilities and share their current predicaments over a few beers at the bar. After a bit of chatting, Joe and Sledge decide the best way to get revenge on Guy would be to pay to visit to his mother, who's living nearby. Cut to Camden Yards in Baltimore, home of the Orioles and site of the celebration of one of the city's greatest heroes, Guy Gardner. The city council have decided to honor their hometown boy at this baseball game, and Guy is there to make a little speech. But as Guy is humbly accepting the deserved praise of Baltimore's masses, Sledge and Joe are sitting in the vacant home of Peggy Gardner, wondering when the hero will pay a visit to his, his estranged mother. The two notice a note pinned to the refrigerator door saying that Peggy is out of town, but more importantly, they find a newspaper article about his appearance at the Orioles game and a phone number that he can be reached at. Back at the stadium, Guy has finished up the presentation and is enjoying some time with old friends, when who should show up but former teammate and current armored hero, Steel, John Henry Irons. The two reminisce about the glory days until Guy gets an unexpected phone call. And who could it have been? Why, it's Joe and Sledge, who are in the process of drinking Peggy's fridge dry and setting the house ablaze. Understandably miffed, Guy charges in to full warrior mode and heads out for his mom's house. Thinking that his former teammate might need some help, John Henry slips away as well to change into his armor to help out his steel. Careening the borrowed car around a corner, Guy comes across the flaming wreckage of his family's house. Luckily, Guy's mom wasn't in the inferno as Sledge and Joe inform him of her absence and of Guy's inevitable demise. But before the beatdown can begin, Steel shows up to lend a hand, and the brawl can now officially start.
Sadly, this is going to be one of the last Guy Gardner stories written by Bo Smith that I'll be covering in this show. It came out right around the time of the introduction of Martika into the Guy Gardner storyline, but before the final dust-up between Guy and his rogues gallery. Joe had already been established with his new powers in Guy Gardner number 36, and Sledge was still kind of a backup character, so this would officially be their first team-up. Plus, this furthers the relationship between Guy and John Henry as, form, as former teammates and friends now. I wrote an email to Bo Smith about the characters and their development, and he very promptly replied with this. Hey, Sean. It was something I wanted to add to the characters mostly because I've always believed in characters having some sort of small, underlying connection other than that they have powers and chase bad guys. Always try and add a layer of personality and real life to the fictional characters so the readers will hopefully better relate to the characters. Many a time this is done with angst or being an outcast in the alter ego, but I wanted to try and show that the alter ego can have an upside as well. Thanks for caring, amigo. Bo. And it will always, always make me happy when Bo calls me Amigo. Oh, that's awesome. But basically, yeah, he put it in there to develop the characters with more than just, oh, we're superheroes and we beat the living crap out of the bad guys. So I like the fact that, yeah, Bo gave Guy Gardner and uh, John Henry this sort of relationship that stemmed out of them being friends prior to them being superheroes. So... I guess that's nice characterization that sometimes you won't find in a lot of superhero books nowadays. Now, uh, heroes, if they know the alternate identities of their uh, costume uh, personas, will often be angsty and emo and generally unfriendly to each other, which is disappointing. But some other notes for the uh, episode. This was also the last year that DC would print the showcase title, which uh, at the beginning I said was initially started as a way to determine if there was enough interest in certain characters to warrant them getting their own titles. Like I said at the beginning, the Silver Age Green Lantern, Flash, Adam, Hawk and Dove, Creeper, Challenges, uh, Challengers of the Unknown, and Batlash all came out of the pages of showcase. And it was updated in the 90s to try and feature initially characters from the Batman family, Catwoman, the Huntress, Robin, Joker, and the etc. And then later, characters from the Superman family, and then finally the entirety of the DC Universe. Showcase 96 was the last year that the Showcase books were published, and now Showcase basically refers to compiled editions of various titles. Unfortunately, one of the showcase editions is not Guy Gardner Warrior, much to Bo Smith's and my chagrin. But regardless of that, we'll go ahead and cover the uh, comic book here, uh, starting with the cover, which is a very 90s looking cover with Steel and Guy on there. Cariello would go on to work with Bo Smith and Chuck Dixon on titles uh, dealing with the character of Wildcat teaming up with Batman and Catwoman, so... Cariello does have his initial dealings with Bo Smith here, and he would eventually go on to do more work with Bo Smith, and his artwork is very 90s. It's not bad, but it is, if you're not a fan of the 90s stuff, it may not be for you, but I like the 90s look, and it's a definitely very 90s look here. Could I say 90s anymore? I think I could. Page 1, panel 5. This is just kind of a minor nitpick here with the art. Uh, in this panel, the position of the players or the position of the characters playing poker is different from the overhead shot that we got in the private 
previous panel. Uh, the way everyone is positioned here, Guy is essentially missing. So it's just a nitpicky thing that I guess when you're, again, reviewing these comics for a show, you tend to pick up on more. Page two, yeah, you've got to think something is a little fishy when there are 16 aces in the uh, deck that you're playing with. You've got to try and imagine that that might be a bit of cheating somewhere. Plus, also on this page, I have to wonder, when did Joe need an eye patch? Unless they're just trying to pass this off initially as Guy Gardner in his uh, sort of leather-jacketed warrior mode, but yeah, Joe never needed an eye patch, and oddly enough, the eye patch disappears after a few panels. Moving on to page 5, panel 2, uh, this is a pretty brutal scene. Sledge, who's very huge, takes a couple of guys' heads in his hand and smashes it together, and blood shoots out of one of the guy's eyes. It's uh, it's not a overly violent panel, but you know when you sit there and think about it, yeah, he just basically crushed a couple of guys' heads together. Ugh. Page seven, panel one. So now Joe goes by the name the Enforcer. Yes, the Enforcer. I guess all the really cool '90s names were taken, and he had to go with that. Well, no, there you go. It's it's the time. However, on the next page, page eight, for some reason, Joe isn't in his leather jacket, Guy Gardner warrior outfit. He's in his quote-unquote enforcer getup, the sort of shiny metallic pants and the uh, glowy energy gloves and the anti-Green Lantern Guy Gardner uniform. So I don't know when he changed out of it, but it's really odd. Plus, on this page, we get a shot uh, showing how massively strong steel, or not steel, but uh, Sledge is, as he takes some pool balls in his hand and basically crushes them. I wonder what that's a metaphor for. Then on page 10, how do you know that Sledge is truly evil? Well, he drives a Humvee. Basically, he likes to destroy the environment. He drinks and drives, so... There you go. And he listens to horrible, loud rock music. The horror. The horror. Page 11. I wonder if the person introducing Guy, who goes by the surname of Jeppy, is Steve Jeppy, the uh, founder of Diamond Comics Distribution. Doing a little uh, research, uh, it looks like he might be, because uh, Jeppy is a big person in Baltimore, and... According to Wikipedia, which we all know is the source of all information, he is also the uh, joint owner for the uh, Baltimore Orioles, so maybe this is Bo Smith actually putting some historical characters in the book. Or maybe not historical, but at least not fictional characters. Page 13, panel 3, as I said in the story, Sledge decides to call Guy Gardner's quote-unquote fancy cell phone number, and you take it for granted now, as cell phones are pretty much ubiquitous, but back in 96, having a cell phone was a kind of a special thing. In fact, looking up a uh, history of cell phones, back in the time, you wouldn't even have touchscreen phones. Uh, it was pretty much your standard cell phone was looking like what a basic cordless phone would look like now. You didn't have the uh, bricks as phones, but yeah, they were still pretty technologically underwhelming. 
Then on the same page, panel five, we get the introduction in the book to John Henry Irons. And it's, like I said, it's kind of cool that he and Guy have a history. And it's well played out uh, with the uh, dialogue here with uh, John Henry coming in and see, saying, I st- still see that you two don't have a, co- a collective IQ of six. And uh, Steele says to him, oh, Lord, Guy, looks like Father Time has put a serious hurt on you. And Guy replies, yeah, well, what happened to the big old fro you used to have you have to squeeze into your helmet? Man, you look just like Tito, or was it Jermaine? I really enjoyed the dialogue that Bo Smith puts in the mouths of Guy Gardner and Steele. It's like two very manly chums actually getting together and reminiscing about the glory days. It's it's wonderful. And on page 14, panel 3, it wouldn't be manly ribbing unless Steele had, as he slapped both Guy and I guess Mr. Jeppy on the back, put kick me signs on the back of him. Awesome. Then on the same page, panel 6, we get Sledge going through the refrigerator and he's pretty much drank everything in there. Backney also drank all the purple stuff. Okay, we got OJ, some purple stuff, some soda, Sunny Delight. I'll try Sunny Delight. Okay. Yeah, yeah there's nothing better than some Sunny D to cool down your rampaging, murderous attack on your enemy's mother. Page 16, panel 1. Guy on this page mentions that for some reason he's down to half strength. Uh... Not really certain why this might be happening, but it might be because he just returned to Earth after the Way of the Warriors storyline. This came out right around then. Like I said, the Martika issue was just happening, so he might be in that sort of weakened stage. So it's good continuity across the books. And finally, on page 17, I am glad that Sledge spent a little time changing into his uniform because... I really didn't want to have to see Guy beat on him with his massive, hairy chest. Uh, just wouldn't work for me. But all in all, this is a good issue. Uh, I mean, the artwork is nice, and uh, Cariello would go on to work, like I said, with uh, Bo Smith in uh, working with, uh, I think, what did I say, the Batman and Catwoman books? So, a little one-shot stuff with him. But uh, there are a couple of other... Uh, what was I say, stories in the uh, showcase. One dealing with the Aqualad and the other dealing with the uh, Metropolis SCU. Not really all that interested in covering them, but just letting you know what that would be in there. But uh, next time around, we're going to be covering another Green Lantern book, obviously, uh, Green Lantern number 87, where Green Lantern teams up with John Jones, the Martian Manhunter. Plus, we'll also be finishing off the storyline in uh, Showcase 96, number two, dealing with Steel and Guy Gardner and the smackdown that will probably occur with uh, Sledge and Joe. It'll be a great Bosmith Manly Man time. So, hopefully, you guys will come back next weekend for that episode. And until then, I hope you all have a great weekend, have a great week, and we'll catch you in seven days on another episode of Just One of the Guys. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know it. 
All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new rule 2, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there as it was a requirement of my new Demonsicore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Avril Lavigne and the song Girlfriend from her album The Best Damn Thing. If you'd like to buy Miss Lavigne's album, or buy the CD, or buy the MP3 of the song, the best place to go to do that would be Amazon.com. And the best way to get to Amazon.com is through the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com. When you go to the Two True Freaks homepage, up at the upper left corner of the page, there is a banner for Amazon.com. Click on that banister and you'll be transported to the site where you can buy the song, buy the mp3, or buy the album in its entirety. You can also buy a myriad other things, electronics, shoes, clothing, whatever your heart desires. And every time you click the link to Amazon.com through the 2 True Freaks site, a small amount of your purchase price goes back to help pay for the 2 True Freaks website. It won't cost you anything extra. You don't have to do anything but go through the link at 2 True Freaks. So anytime you want to shop at Amazon.com, please think of going through this link at 2TrueFreaks.com.